when we last uh, were in the Gospel of Luke, I just want to remind you of a couple things this morning. Uh, the, the theme verse of Luke is in chapter 19, verse 10, where Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus, and he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, that's really what the Gospel of Luke is all about. And so back in uh, December, we really focused in during the Advent year on the coming uh, of the Son of Man. And we spent about five or six weeks looking at uh, Luke's narrative passages early on in his Gospel where he talks about uh, Mary becoming pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And we learned about the birth of John the Baptist and, and uh, the, uh, the shepherds coming and, and uh, welcoming the new Messiah. Uh, and then in early January, we turned our attention to the second part of that verse, the Son of Man came to seek. And we began to examine the seeking ministry of Jesus. And up through the, the middle to towards the end of Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus is doing the vast majority of his seeking, as Luke records it, in the northern portion of Israel. It's the, the ministry that Jesus has in and around Galilee. If you have a Bible, you know you've got those maps in the, in the back of your Bible. You can go and look at the page where it shows uh, Palestine during the time of Jesus. And you'll see it's divided into what we would call counties or, or regions or states. And Galilee is in the north. Uh, and so we've been examining Luke's gospel as he, as he talks about Jesus' ministry in the north. And most of what Luke says up through chapter 9, verse 51, discusses the works of Jesus. Luke lays a foundation for the authority of Jesus as the Son of Man, as the Messiah of God, by pointing us most of the time in those first nine chapters to the miraculous works of Jesus. And so we saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. Uh, we saw Jesus feeding uh, 5,000. We saw Jesus doing a lot of different miraculous works, healing uh, the woman who had, who had had an infirmity for over 12 years and, and couldn't be healed. We looked at passages where Jesus was doing. In chapter 9, verse 51, as you're going to see in just a moment, Luke makes a transition, and, and he turns the gospel in a different direction. As Jesus begins to head towards Jerusalem and begins to head towards uh, his death on the cross, Luke is now much more interested, not in the works of Jesus. We're not going to see too many more passages where Jesus is, where, where the focus is a healing ministry of Jesus, but we're going to be examining the teaching ministry of Jesus. That's really going to be uh, what we're going to focus on between now uh, through the end of November. Uh, and then in January, we're going to, to begin the very last section of this when we look at the Son of Man came to save the lost. So we're going to look at Jesus' uh, death. We're going to look at his, his trial. We're going to look at his torment all the way through his resurrection uh, and his meeting with his disciples post-resurrection. So that's, that's kind of the, the study that we're on. That's kind of the time frame. And so uh, beginning this Sunday and through the mid part of November, we're going to be looking at the second half of the Son of Man coming to seek. So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9. In uh, just a moment, we're going to be looking at verses 51 uh, through 62. Uh, before we do that, let me just toss out a, an observation. Uh, I had a chance, as a lot of you did, to watch the uh, U.S. Open on TV, and uh, all of us were amazed. I think, at Tiger Woods when you found out afterwards that he was actually playing golf on a broken leg. <laughs> that takes a lot of grit. That takes a lot of determination. It really is quite amazing. And probably all of us, whether it's in the sporting world or, or in any different walk of life, uh, there are always people that kind of rise to the challenge. Uh, we always uh, find those one or two examples of someone who's gone through tremendous hardship. Uh, maybe just in the everyday course of life. They may not be a public figure 
Uh, there may be the person that lives next door to you that has, uh, you know, battle against tremendous odds, and yet there seems to be a, a singular focus about them. Uh, there seems to be an attitude that says, I, I can do this. I can make it. Uh, I was reading this week with great interest uh, about the young man who carried the United States flag into Olympic Stadium. I don't know if you all have had a chance to hear this story or not. I'm going to tell you just a little bit about it this morning. Uh, his name is Lopez Lomung, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his, right, his last name correctly, but it's, it's that way when you're hooked on phonics. So if I'm mispronouncing it, you can tell me that after the service. But he uh, is a 1,500-meter runner for the United States, and he was the one that carried our flag into, uh, into Olympic Stadium just the other night. But I want to read you a little bit about his life story. Lopez Lomung's life on the run began in the Sudan, and it would have ended there too with just one false step. Two decades and thousands of miles later, it will slow to a walk for a few precious moments tonight, long enough for him to carry the U.S. flag into Olympic Stadium. Now I'm not just one of the lost boys, he said. I'm an American. The 1,500-meter runner is one of eight foreign-born members of the track and field squad and a number that swells to uh, to nearly 40 when the entire 595-strong U.S. contingent is included. But the first half of his version of the American dream reads like most people's nightmares. Lomung was trapped for several weeks, uh, excuse me, uh, skipped ahead, abducted at age six from a village in Kimotong when soldiers from the Sudanese People Liberation Army burst into a church service in search of conscripts. The next decade of his life was a whirlpool of death, despair, and starvation. Lomung was trapped for several weeks in a rebel camp uh, and then for 10 years in a refugee camp in Kenya, hemmed in by a long-running civil war, uh, pitting in that talks about the two different, the government army uh, and then the tribal black armies in the south. Nearly every day on every side of him, he watched the life slowly ebb from kids his age, heard their final gasps, and wondered whether he would be next. His first glimpse of the wider world came in 2000 when Lomung was paid five Kenyan shillings, about seven cents, to move a pile of dirt. And then he ran five miles with some friend to hand over their earnings for a chance to watch the Sydney Olympics on a black and white TV. Lomung stood mesmerized as Michael Jordan zoomed around the oval in the 400 meters. The moment it ended, he announced, I want to run just like that. Eventually, Lomung would be... um, would be uh, would, but first he had to find his way out of uh, the refugee camp in northern Kenya. His chance came the following year when an international relief effort was mounted to relocate nearly 3,800 residents of the camp, most of them the so-called lost boys of Sudan. They were being relocated to American homes. In an essay that provided his ticket out, he wrote poignantly, it was my life story, how I was separated from my family, how I ended up in a camp where my family was. By that point, I thought my family was already dead. Around the same time, Robert and Barbara Rogers of Tully, New York, read the notice in their church bulletin that Catholic charities were looking for foster parents to take in Sudanese refugees. Their first uh, meeting with Lohman was a classic. I'd ask whether he understood how things worked, uh, Robert Rogers said, still chuckling at the memory. And at first, he said yes to everything. In fact, Lohman was amazed that the Rogers had their own car, let alone three of them, and how wide and smooth the roads were. Afraid he would be taken from his new home if he caused even the slightest problem, Lomung slept the first night with the lights on. He had no idea how to adjust the temperatures in the shower and spent one morning jumping in and out of scalding water as he lathered himself with soap. 
And the next morning, he shivered for the duration of his ice-cold shower. The first cross-country meet he entered in high school, Loma kept passing the golf cart racing ahead to pace the runners. The cart driver would take shortcuts to regain the lead, but but soon enough, Loman caught up. I never thought I could be involved in cross-country, but I could drive the cart. I I found something I could could do. After passing for the third time, he was so gassed that he got passed by two more experienced runners close to the tape. For a second meet, Loman's coach told him to run with the pack for two miles, and if he had anything left, then to take off from there. So for two miles, he ran as as he had run in Africa, talking to the other runners all the while. (laughs) When he reached the two-mile mark, Lomung excused himself with, I must go now, (laughs) and zoomed ahead to an easy win. (laughs) He grew into a lithe 5'11", 150-pounder, and went on to become a state champion and then an NCAA champion at 3,000 meters and at the U.S. Nationals last month an Olympian. It's the song I've been singing and singing, Loman says, and now it has come true. Um, last December, he had, I'm not going to read the rest of the story, it's a little bit more, but last December, the story goes on to say is he got to go back home and he was reunited with his parents uh, who had thought he was dead. And they actually got to go out to, uh, to the little gravesite they had made for him where they had taken uh, a bracelet of his and some of his belongings and they had placed it on the ground and put some rocks over it. And he talked about how they got to take the rocks off. And he said it was like, it was like being reborn. There, there's something about a person who, who has a single purpose and, and strives to achieve it and, and doesn't back down and doesn't give up uh, and doesn't turn away when it gets difficult or gets challenging. Luke chapter 9, 51 describes the person who did that best. And what we're going to look at this morning is not just a transition from uh, the working ministry of Jesus, so to speak, to the teaching ministry of Jesus. But what we're going to see is a decision uh, made by the Son of Man that eventually led to his execution, that eventually led to his death. But he makes a decision with the singleness of mind and a purpose that is important for us as his disciples to see. And then beyond that, as he begins then to make his way to Jerusalem, we're going to look at just a few brief verses that describe his invitation for us to follow, but also a very brutally honest warning for those of us who may choose to do so. So with that in mind, Luke chapter 9, beginning of verse 51 and reading through the end of the chapter through verse 62. Hear the word of God. When the days drew near for him, that being Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back 
is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would give us uh, hearts and minds to understand and to apply it to our lives. Lord Jesus, as we turn this page, as Luke turned the page and begins to point our attention in a radically different direction for the next several months, I pray that our hearts and our souls would feed on this word, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we would be corrected, that we would be instructed in what you want us to know. Father, it's not my word that is important. It doesn't carry any weight. It is only your eternal word that stands in the midst of life's storms and will stand for all of eternity. So that is why we're here, Lord, to hear from you, to interact with you, to worship you, to learn from you, to grow in you. So I pray, Father, that I wouldn't stand in the way of that. I pray that you would forgive my sin, and I pray that you would allow us to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I want to begin in in verse 51 uh, because it's probably the most poignant uh, verse of everything we're going to look at this morning as far as a description of the demanding resolution that Jesus uh, makes in his life. It says in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I spent some time uh, looking at some of the Greek here uh, this week, and the Greek word that says uh, the, the idea that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, it means to render mentally steadfast. In other words, it means to make up your mind and it means to say, I'm going in this direction and no matter what obstacles come across my path, no matter what challenges I may face, I will not turn to the right nor the left and I won't stop until I accomplish my goal. It is a mindset that is singular that seems to me on the surface to be an odd choice uh, for the language which uh, follows that is time to be taken up. That's obviously ascension language. It's talking about Jesus going back into heaven. We know that Jesus was God before he took on human, human shape and human form. We know that Jesus exists eternally, co-equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. He, was, he didn't begin his existence uh, with his birth in Bethlehem. He simply took on a human form at that time. So we know that Jesus returned to heaven, and it seems to me that that would be a glorious thing. It seems to me that that would be something to which Jesus would be, would be looking forward and he'd be excited about being reunited with his father and with the heavenly hosts. And so to think that he had to make a steadfast choice to head in that direction seems to me to be odd. You know, nobody has to say to me on Christmas Eve, now, Tom, you, you better make up your mind to wake up tomorrow morning and open those Christmas presents. I know it's going to be tough on you, but you, but you better get your, your mind around that idea that you're going to get gifts tomorrow morning. You know, nobody, nobody has to coach me in that way. Uh, part of our, our time away was spent here in St. Louis just kind of hanging around the house, but we got to go north for about eight or nine days, and we spent a little bit of time in Wisconsin and a little bit of time in Michigan with some friends, and nobody had to say to me, now, Tom, you better get your mind around leaving 92 degrees and 100% humidity and get ready to go where the high is only going to be 73, and it's going to be 60 every night. It's going to be tough, so you better mentally prepare yourself for it. I just got in the car and went, and I got to be honest, I didn't look back. <laughs> Nobody had to challenge me in that way. And it seems like Jesus is is getting ready to face an unbelievable experience. And so the words didn't quite seem to match up until I gave it a little more thought and I realized that although Luke is using ascension language, talking about the glory to which Jesus is going to be returning, 
he's also going to tell us down the road that Jesus must travel through pain and suffering and the struggle that no human being has ever faced nor ever will face again in the history of this world in order to get to that day. Jesus' road was going to go through the rejection of the people that wanted to make him the king one day, and the next day they're saying, crucify him. Jesus traveled through betrayal of one of his closest friends who sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus' road was going to travel through the abandonment of the people that he had spent three years with day in and day out, those who he called his disciples, the 12 people that were most special and most important and were all going to run away. And one of them was even going to say, you know what, I never even met the guy in my life. Think about your deepest, darkest moment and having no one around you to put their arm around you, to encourage you, to care for you, to love you. So you know what, even if my friends abandon me, well, I at least have my family. But Jesus knew that his road was leading to the cross where he was going to experience the wrath and the punishment of his father poured out on the sins of the world. The sins that you and I committed were going to be counted against Jesus. Everything that Tom Ricks ever did that flies in the face of the glory and the majesty of God was going to be applied to Jesus' account. And everything you've ever done that has been an offense to God was going to be piled upon Jesus. And when God the Father did that, he turned his back on his son. So if you're going to go down that road, you got to make your mind up. And you got to make your mind up early, and you got to make your mind up often. Because this is no picnic to which Jesus is attending, but rather it's going to be the darkest, most difficult journey that anyone could ever take. And it's not a choice to be made lightly, but Jesus knew full well. He knew what hung in the balance. He knew that your eternal destiny and my eternal destiny, the hope of our salvation was wrapped up in him taking that step to move towards Jerusalem. He saw the personal horror for all that it was. And he saw the opportunity to save your soul and to save my soul. And he set his face towards Jerusalem. But I also want you to notice in verses 52 and 53, the gracious attitude with which he approached this. He sends messengers ahead of him to, as they entered a Samaritan village uh, to make preparations to find a place where they could stay for the night, to get a meal, just you know, kind of regular travel plans uh, like you and I would, would, uh, would make. But in those days, you went to people's homes and folks opened their homes to you. And there was no one found in this village because they knew he was heading towards Jerusalem. The Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along very well. And so if the Samaritans knew that you were passing through their village on your way to worship God at Jerusalem, they didn't want to have anything to do with you. And so Jesus encounters uh, a test to his resolution. He's determined to offer the most profound gift of mercy that the world has ever seen at a great personal cost. And his decision is immediately tested. He was dying for the people in that Samaritan village, just as he was dying for you and for me. And they wouldn't even give him a place to stay. Isn't that how it always goes? You you make a decision. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to follow you, Lord. And it seems like immediately you're put to the test. I have a really dumb example of this, but uh, this weekend I was involved in a, in a wedding of a, a child of a friend of mine. I, I did the service, uh, but as you know, nobody really likes getting married in the Bulldog Cafeteria, and I can't really blame them for that. <clears throat> My daughter's already announced she's not getting married in the Bulldog Cafeteria, and I said, that's fine. The gym is really a nice building too. Um, but we were in uh, another folks' church, and I always say to myself before I go to somebody else's church, be a good visitor. 
You know, be, be the person that they want to invite back. Don't be rude. Don't, you know, just go in and be nice, everybody. Go by their rules and everything will be fine. So I, I pull up to the curb. I'm going in this church. I'm saying, you know, be a really good visitor, Tom. And be a good representative of a green tree and Jesus and all those things. I just say to yourself, walk in the door and we see some folks and people are coming in from out of town. So everybody's hugging and greeting and, and we're standing out in the lobby and we're kind of being noisy and, you know, high five and, and everybody's excited about the wedding. And, and a woman walks out and she says, now let's all begin to use our church voices. I had to breathe kind of deep. <laughs> I haven't been talked to like I was a kindergartner in a little while. And, uh, he said, be a good visitor, be a good visitor. That really wasn't what I was thinking. I can't say what I was thinking. But it's like, okay, I just, just a simple thing. Tom, just be a gracious person. And immediately that's, that's put to the test. But praise God, <laughs> he gave me graciousness. And I walked up and introduced myself. I said, I'm the, I'm the pastor and I, and I just want you to know that whatever you want us to do, we're gonna do it. And this is gonna go perfect because you're in charge. And I know that you know what needs to happen uh, in this church. But, but I find it, I just find it so interesting that even something as little as silly as that can immediately be tested. Where is my resolve? Where is my heart? Do I have the gracious attitude of Jesus? Because James and John were certainly enthusiastic. I mean, these guys, these are the kind of guys you want on your side. <laughs> Jesus, you want to just call down fire. We'll just wipe the whole thing out. Not a problem. You know, we can then we pitch our tent. We'll have a nice evening. We can roast some marshmallows. Everything will be great, you know. They were enthusiastic, but they were dead wrong. And Jesus is full of compassion and full of commitment. And so he finds another village. He says, you know what, guys, you've missed it. In fact, it says that he turns and he rebukes them. So that's a strong word. Jesus doesn't rebuke very often. There, there are just a handful of times in the New Testament where it says Jesus rebuked someone, and this is one of those times. So he, he corrected James and John in a very stern manner, and then he said, now let's move on. He was gracious and he was compassionate and he was committed all at the same time. I want you to know by the, by the end of that Friday evening, uh, the, the woman who, who suggested we use the correct tone of voice came up and gave me a high five. <laughs> and she said, you're great. You can come back here anytime. And I went, it's all Jesus, sister. Trust me, it is all, it is all Jesus. It's one thing to make the same kind of resolution. It's another thing to do so with a gracious attitude. But Jesus combines those two in a beautiful way. But then he offers a somber warning. As Jesus is traveling along, we see three different conversations he has. Uh, Two of the would-be disciples are enthusiastically volunteering uh, to their services uh, and to join them. And there's one potential disciple that Jesus himself actually is recruiting on the way. But in the midst of these conversations, Jesus offers some very honest warnings to those who would call themselves disciples. And so I want to come here for just a a moment in this morning's text because there are a lot of people in this room, myself included, who would say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I've made that decision. I believe that he's the Savior. I believe that he's my Lord. I believe that the death on the cross really did pay the price for my sins. And now I want to be one of those people who commit themselves to following him. And Jesus always welcomes us. He always welcomes us, but he always tells us the truth. And this morning is no different. So for those of us who are contemplating becoming disciples, or for those of us who call ourselves disciples, these next few verses offer to us a very brutal honesty about what that might mean. Verses 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. 
and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus assures this this first wannabe disciple, not of glory. He doesn't assure him of of even God's presence in his life. Uh, He doesn't assure him that that whatever he does as a disciple is going to make a great impact for the kingdom of God. Uh, He doesn't give him a spiritual gifts test to find out exactly where he's going to fit in his role as disciple, although all those things are great and and all those things are appropriate and good. But Jesus says, I want to assure you of one thing if you're going to follow me wherever I go. And here's what I can assure you of in this life. I can assure you of uncertainty. I can assure you of hardship. Jesus says, the birds of the air have a nest. Foxes have holes in the ground. I don't even know where I'm going to sleep tonight. You sure you still want to come with me? That's what I can promise in this life. I can promise you there's going to be times where you're going to look around and go, I, I don't even really feel like I have a home anymore. I don't seem to belong to the, to the group I used to belong to because now that I'm following Christ, they've kind of turned their back on me and, and they really don't want to have anything to do with me. And that might even be close personal family members who say, you know what, I just, I'm not buying the Jesus thing and I really wish you'd be quiet about it. You may feel like you literally don't have a pillow to lay your head on because if you follow me, sometimes it's gonna be awfully lonely. It's going to be very uncertain. Are you sure you really want to buy in to that opportunity? Uh, I was rereading this week uh, an email that one of our own missionaries uh, sent to her father and she was talking to him about some things that the Lord was laying on her heart and she's serving uh, in Northern Ireland right now. And she got this idea in her head uh, that she wanted to kind of go beyond the borders uh, of Northern Ireland in her, in her work as a missionary. She's, she's a young gal in her mid-20s. And I'm not, the, the email was pretty long, uh, but I'm just gonna read you one paragraph of it because I think it's, it speaks to this point. She writes, I know that you are not the most excited about the prospect of me going to Pakistan and with good reason. I can actually picture your face when the country is mentioned. It's not really a safe place to go. There's the understatement of the world. And yet following Jesus isn't safe. I know for years that the Lord has called me to the nations, and I'm thrilled, uh, and I am thrilled that now he is asking me to breach some of the borders of the comfort I find in nations like Northern Ireland, Lebanon, South Africa, and in nations like Pakistan, and well, Let's just leave it at that for now. <laughs> Following Jesus, wherever he goes, are you ready to do that? Am I ready to do that? It doesn't necessarily mean Pakistan, although for this young woman, it happens to, in other countries. She, I was in South Africa last summer. She found South Africa kind of child's play. <laughs> that, that's astounding to me of her spiritual maturity. Am I really ready to follow? might mean just next door, stepping into a family that's filled with violence and anger and hatred in order to represent Christ. might mean getting out of my office and walking down the hall and talking to a person that I know has made some really bad life choices and is angry and resentful. And the last thing they want to hear is maybe the message that I have to offer. Maybe unconditionally welcoming a child back into my home who's let me down time and time and time again. Do you really want to follow Jesus wherever he goes? Think about it. Verses 59 and 60. To another, he said, this is the one he's recruiting, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, what sound like some of the coldest words in all of scripture, leave the dead 
to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, let me just say off the bat that Jesus is not suggesting that you never go to a funeral, that if one of your loved ones passes away, that you don't go and and bury them and, and take care of them. Jesus is simply offering this man some perspective. And he's simply helping him understand the depth to which following Jesus goes. Jesus challenges this recruit to say, the kingdom priorities come first in every area of your life. Because that's what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is not about death. The kingdom is about life. It's about eternal life. And so if you're going to follow me, you're going to need to proclaim that relentlessly and ruthlessly and and yet filled with grace everywhere you go. The dead can, can take care of themselves. In a sense, he's saying, you can't do anything for your dad right now, but what you can do is to go and proclaim the kingdom of God so that life can enter another. So that when there's another day for a burial, there will be a celebration of life, not just mourning death. Does my life set kingdom priorities on a daily basis in the big things as well as in the little things? I was in a bank last Saturday. Yeah, we could go Saturday with my mom. And we were signing some papers for some family financial stuff. And mom said to me, uh, she walked over. I was sitting at the desk and she was actually doing some business at the, at the counter there with a teller. She walked over to me and said, hey, this young man, so-and-so, and I can't remember his name, he's going to Colorado University. He's going to Boulder in the fall. What's the name of that church out there you guys planted? And I hopped up and I walked over to him and he looked about as interested as, as you know, we're interested in the Cubs beating the Cardinals tonight. And I said, uh, the, the name of the church is All Souls. And the pastor is a name, Kirk Atkinson. And I'm guessing that, that you don't want to have anything to do with his church, but it's a great church. And, and you should seek them out. There are a lot of college kids there. You, you should find them. And I went back and I filled up my paperwork and I got it left. But I thought, here's my mom at the bank signing papers and finds out this kid's going to Boulder and is immediately about kingdom business, just in the little small things of life. Friend, you don't have to go to Pakistan to do kingdom business. It's all around you. The question is, do we see it and do we set those priorities in our lives? Jesus warns us if we're going to follow him, the kingdom comes first. Then one more warning in verse 61, 62. Yet another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Another stark response to someone who seems to be pretty enthusiastic about coming on and being part of the team. And yet Jesus is warning against the competing influences in our lives. Jesus probably knew something about this man because Jesus knows everything. And perhaps he knew that if he went back home, there was gonna be somebody in his life that maybe still had too much influence over him and could talk him out of really becoming a disciple of Jesus. And so Jesus says, once you've made that decision, don't look back. Don't question it. Don't think maybe you made the wrong choice, but look straight ahead just as someone is plowing a field and do it well. Friends, I think that's a great word of warning for you and for me this morning. 
I have a garden in my backyard and, uh, and Earl Hopper's kind enough to let me use his rototiller every spring to till it up. And I was reading these verses one spring and I decided I was going to try and till looking backwards <laughs> just to see if what Jesus said was right. You know, like Jesus needs me to test it so I can come here today and tell you whether it is or not. But it was really ugly. <laughs> you know, I, I went all over the place and, and I made a mess out of it until I paid attention to making the rows even and to getting everything chopped up just finely and perfectly so that I could get the tomatoes and everything else in the ground. It was a debacle. And Jesus is simply picking up on, a, on an example from nature. And he says, you can't plow like this. It just doesn't work. How often have I said, Jesus, I'm going this direction. And it's something that looks good passing me by that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And I start trying to plow like this. And all of a sudden, I'm plowing in this direction. Because you plow where you're looking. And Jesus says, be careful. Be on your guard. Don't misunderstand my call in your life. He's not saying you can't talk to family and friends. He's saying you can't say goodbye to someone. But he's saying make sure that the kingdom is not influenced by other uh, demands on your time and your energy and your effort. If you're going to be a disciple, friends, here's what I figured out in all of this. This is probably, boil it down to this. You can't be a disciple and. (laughs) You're either a disciple or you're not. Now, I understand that, that I'm a disciple and a husband and a father. I understand there are other, other titles that you can give me, but the primary one and the sole one, if I boil it all down, has to be disciple. The word that Jesus gives to us should make us sit up and pay attention. His caution is just as meaningful today as it was 2,000 years ago, maybe even more so. The question really boils down to, do we really want to follow him? We're a generation of disciples who live in a culture that glorify comfort and affluence and leisure. We're continually tempted to be temporal in our mindset and easily distracted from the weightier eternal matters. You know, it goes something like this. Being a Christian is okay, but just don't blow it out of proportion. Just don't get too serious. Don't be too fanatical about it. Be be a disciple with a little d and and make sure you just kind of keep it in the right compartment while you do all the other things in your life. I had a a guy in my youth ministry in Lookout Mountain uh, years and years ago when we were in Tennessee who decided after he got out of college that he wanted to go to seminary. And he went to his parents and he said, I want to go to seminary. I want to give my life in service to the Lord. And his mom said to him, don't waste your life like Tom Ricks is wasting his life. (laughs) I consider that one of the greatest compliments I've ever received in my life. But that's the mindset in this day and age. Be a Christian, but just with a little C. Be a disciple with a little D because there's lots of other stuff that's far more important. Just keep it to yourself and be polite and nobody will will get hurt. And we say, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, really? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the most comforting verse in this passage is that you set your face towards Jerusalem. You wouldn't flinch and you wouldn't retreat and you wouldn't back off even though the shadow of the cross loomed on the horizon. And those little words that Luke was inspired to write down give us great hope because it means you saw all the gore and all the pain and all the struggle and all the rejection and betrayal and you said, my children are worth it. I will give my life for them. And yet, Lord Jesus, as we seek to follow you, as as we seek to to give ourselves to you, those of us who who want to call ourselves disciples, we are so easily distracted. 
And so I thank you for the, the word of warning this morning, although it might disturb our souls a little bit, although it might cause us a bit of unease, uh, to be a little bit nervous, yet, Lord Jesus, you've given it to us for, for our hope and for a good purpose that we would understand and that, that the right perspective of following you would line up in our hearts and our minds as we walk out of these doors and into a world filled with darkness and into a world that, that will tempt us every moment of this week to turn aside and to turn back and to be quiet and to, and to, and to keep our faith as a, as a very small thing in our lives. Yet, Father, we need to set our face towards the kingdom of God. And we do need to follow you wherever you lead. But, Lord, we can't do it on our own strength. So I pray that you, Holy Spirit, by the word of God and by your power, would enable us and strengthen us to follow Jesus this week, wherever he leads. I pray in his name. Amen.